0: Are we there yet? Anybody ever heard that phrase from the back of the car on a long journey? Are we there yet? Well, are we there yet? We come to a time now when we think about Christmas, and probably some of us might be thinking, are we getting there yet? There's something special about Christmas as we think about the birth of Jesus as he was born as a baby, born as a human being. And there's something very special about babies. They're precious, they're helpless, they're dependent, they're cute, they keep their parents awake at night, they demand their feeding when they feel like it, they have lots of nappies that need changing, they cry a lot, some do, some more than others, the parents take the good with the bad. But every parent of a child expects growth, expects development, expects something to change. That first smile. Or was it colic? Or they start to put on weight. We know that a newborn baby loses weight at first and then starts to put it on again. Well, keep a careful eye on the baby's weight. And then there's the first solid food. Some take to it better than others or quicker than others. But a parent will be very concerned if their baby never wanted anything but milk. And as we carry, continue reading in the letter to the Hebrews, we find that the writer has the same concern for the people he's writing to. Are we there yet? Well, let's pray and ask God to guide us through this passage of Scripture. Father, we thank you for the word that you've given to us. We pray that as we read the scriptures this evening that you will open our hearts and minds to understand your truths and to grow more like you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Babes in Christ. Well, we're starting looking at Hebrews chapter 5 from verse 11 this evening. And he starts off by saying there is much more we would like to say about this. Now if you were here when I last spoke on Hebrews, we were talking about this strange Old Testament character, Melchizedek, who was a priest of God, a Canaanite, supposedly from a pagan culture, and yet one who was a worshipper of God, and a priest of God. And Our writer wants to say more about this, but what? But it's difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. There's a big distinction between the Old Testament order of priests that was started by Aaron and this other order, this order of Melchizedek, which which suddenly appears in this letter to the Hebrews. You're spiritually dull. The word that's translated dull there means lazy, sluggish, hard of hearing. And not only are they dull and sluggish, they're not even listening. As we've been reading through the letter of Hebrews so far, there's been a few times when... We seem to get an idea that he's thinking that they're really not quite with it. Back in chapter 2, he wrote, We must listen very carefully to the truth we've heard, or we may drift away from it. In chapter 3, he says, Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. And in chapter 4, God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. There's a problem with these people to whom our writer is writing this letter. And then he goes on in verse 12. He puts the boot in, to be be frank. He says, you've been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. You are like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. These Christians are not yet weaned. Now We all start out as babies, both physically and spiritually. But these people seem to be happy to stay babies. They've come to know the Lord, and yet they don't go any further. Why are we saved? Why did Jesus die for us and give us new life? It was to serve God and to serve his church. It was to learn, to grow, not simply to sit in the pews and lap up whatever comes, but to, there's work to be done. There's a ministry for all. They simply haven't quite got the point. A few weeks ago, when uh, in our studies in Acts, Jody spoke to us about the time when Paul was in Philippi and in jail. And he said to the jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But that's not the end of things, that's the beginning. It's just the start of spiritual life. And as we have opportunity to grow, we should take it. The readers of this letter, the first readers of this letter, seem as though they need to go back and start again, back to the basics. You need someone to teach you again these basic things a bits like a bit like some of these uh, people in our village who come along to the carols in the park. We had a great time on Tuesday night. And people come along year after year and they hear the message of why Jesus came to this earth. And yet it doesn't really seem to sink in. They come again the next year and hear it again. They never quite get the message. Some people might ask, which is more important, Christmas or Easter? Well, we know that at Easter we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, through which we are able to have forgiveness for our sins and enter into eternal life with him. That's where our salvation comes from, Easter. But Easter could never have happened without Christmas. He had to be born. He had to develop. He had to grow. And at the same time, we could never be saved by a perpetual baby in a manger. He had to grow up and die for our sakes. And no more can a believer serve the Lord in perpetual infancy. Long-standing believers, like these people to whom this letter is written, should be taking solid food, like adults. They should be teaching others. But it seems they still can't digest anything stronger than milk. They've got a long way to go. A healthy baby wants solid food, wants to touch things, grasp, see things, respond to movement have new experiences sit stand walk talk grow learn a healthy baby needs to grow up but for someone who lives on milk is someone is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right says our writer are they just unwilling to take responsibility they've trusted jesus for their salvation and now they want to sit back and take it easy. They're probably too busy to read their Bible and pray, but they just go along to church. That'll do. He goes on, Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognise the difference between right and wrong. These people need to mature. They need to develop skills for an effective Christian life and ministry. And experience and skill is developed through practice. Spiritual maturity is not just some automatic result of time. You've been a Christian for a year or two, you must be getting mature. It results from focused listening to God's word. Living out that word in our lives, in fellowship with our Christian community. Babes in Christ, it's a beginning But it's not the end. Our writer says, trust God and get going. Moving on to chapter 6, he says, So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And so, God willing, we will move forward to further understanding. You know the basics. You've been there. You don't need to go over it all again. But you do need to change. When Paul was writing his first letter to the church in Corinth, he lays a similar charge against Corinthians who are immature in their faith. He says they need to continue to get milk because that's all they can cope with. But our writer here to the Hebrews takes a different approach. He says because you are immature, you need to give up the milk. You need a cure from your immaturity. You need to be stretched. You've been immature for too long. You need to be jolted out of your immaturity. In those verses we just read, he mentions six basic teachings that they seem to want to keep going back to. They're all important things in the Christian faith. But they're also things which are consistent with the Judaism from which the readers were saved. They were Jews. And now, they still seem to want to hang on to those Old Testament ideas, but not to go any further. Wake up. Think about it. You know the basics. Now move on. Grow up. Get going. Trust God and keep going, he says. And we read these... These words in the following verses. He says, It is impossible to bring back to repentance those who were once enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, and who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing him to the cross once again and holding him up to public shame. My commentary tells me that this passage is one of the most difficult in the New Testament. So I may not give you the definitive answer on it now because wiser theologians than I have struggled over it for two millennia trying to work out what it really means. But it's giving a harsh warning for people who have left the Christian faith. But what can we say about these verses without getting into too much controversy? Clearly, on again and off again is not really on. There is danger in falling away from faith. What is he saying? Is he saying... A person can be saved and then unsaved? Tom used to come to church regularly. He was a stalwart of the church, a pillar of the church. He was always in our services. He used to go to the Bible study group. He even used to teach scripture in the school. He was into everything. Oh, there's a good fellow, Tom. You could rely on Tom. And then he decided to buy himself a boat. And the next weekend, oh, he didn't turn up to church the next weekend. Now, oh, where's Tom got to? Uh, the next weekend he came along and he was t- telling everybody how wonderful he had, what a wonderful weekend he had trying out his new boat. That was fantastic. And then he was missing for a couple more weeks. And he came back again, and, oh, we've met some beautiful people in this boat club that we've joined, and, oh, we're having a wonderful time. And over the next few months, we see less and less of Tom, less and less, week by week, until we don't see him anymore. Now, what can we say about Tom? If we take these verses in one way... We might say here was a real converted Christian committed to God and now he's going to hell. Is it possible to be saved and then unsaved? Some of the worst of heresies come straight from the pages of the Bible. Some of the worst false teachings. And why is that? It's because people take a few verses out of their context and interpret them without reference to the rest of the Bible. We need to know the Bible as a whole. It's a complete book. It's not just a take a bit here and take a bit there. Have you, have you read the Bible? I wonder if you've read the Bible through. It's a bit daunting when you look at it, It's an awful lot of text there. but. It's not that difficult taking a a bit at a time. If you read a few verses from the Old and the New Testament each day, I find I can get through it in about 10 months. Read a bit more and you'll get through it quicker. But it doesn't matter if it takes you 10 months or 10 years. It's good to know what the Bible has to say and to understand it all. And if you do, don't make the mistake of starting in Genesis chapter 1 and planning to read through to Revelation 22. You'll probably get bogged down in Leviticus and give it up. (laughs) But we need to understand the whole of Scripture. Now, can we never be sure that we're saved? Is it possible to be a committed Christian and then, well, we can drift away? Things can take our hearts away. Can we lose our salvation? Or are we saved by what we do? Is he teaching us salvation by works here? You're saved as long as you keep doing the right thing. Well, I think the answer to both those questions is no. Jesus said, Those the Father has given me will come to me and I will never reject them. He also said, And this is the will of God, that I should not lose even one of all those he has given me, but that I should raise them up at the last day. And he said, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. I think the evidence of those scriptures is that when we come to know Jesus, when we come to put our faith and trust in Him, we are saved. And we can have every confidence that we are saved. Christians do still sin. We know that. Every time we come together, we say a confession. When we say we've done what we ought not to have done and we've not done what we ought to have done. We haven't done that yet, but we will do before the end of the service. We know that when we confess our sins, we are forgiven. We don't lose our salvation because we fail to keep up with the things that we should be doing. So what does our writer mean by turn away from God? Are those people who were enlightened, who experienced the good things of heaven, who shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then turn away, are they unsavable? They'd heard the word of God, they'd seen its effects, they'd seen signs and wonders. But had they really put their trust in Jesus? Were they really saved in the first place? Some people get immunised, you know what immunisation is, you have a little bit of something that protects you from something worse. They get immunised by exposure to the truth without actually accepting it. Some people may look like Christians but have never actually moved that knowledge from their head to their heart. They know it. They do it. Most people want to belong to something, don't they? We want to belong. People come along to church and they want to belong. People go to any other organisation and they want to belong. How do you get to belong? Well, you do the things that the other people do. You say the things that the other people say. You get involved in the same sort of things. But in the Christian church, there's one thing that nobody can see, and that is the heart. God alone knows the person's heart. God alone knows whether you have placed your faith in Jesus or whether you just look like it. It can be easy to be... Immunized by exposure to the truth. People can be attached in a formal way to the true truth but never actually experience a relationship with Jesus. These people, if they've never actually trusted in Jesus, are still savable. They can still turn around and put their trust in Him. Or they can simply fall away and be lost. And I think the point that is make, made in these verses is how hard it is for somebody who has experienced all these things, has seen it all, and rejected it, to turn around and come back to true faith. Some appear to be true believers, but only God knows the heart. Our writer goes on, When the ground soaks up the falling rain and bears a good crop for the farmer, it has God's blessing. But if a field bears thorns and thistles, it is useless. The farmer will soon condemn that field and burn it. God's blessing falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the bad, the believers and the unbelievers. But unless that blessing produces a fruit, it is worthless. It's on dangerous ground to be fruitless. He goes on, trust God, he loves you. Verse 9, dear friends, even though we are talking this way, we don't really believe that it applies to you. We are confident that you are meant for better things things that come with salvation he's softening his approach here a little isn't he this, this isn't really what you're like you've started well now keep it up it's not too late to change it's not too late to get on the solid food there are better things ahead grown ups can enjoy things that babies can't and God loves you God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers, as you still do. Our great desire is that you will keep on loving others as long as life lasts, in order to make certain that what you hope for will come true. And the next verse, then, you will not become spiritually dull and indifferent. Instead, you will follow the example of those who are going to inherit God's promises because of their faith and endurance. This letter to the Hebrews was written for Christians who were experiencing difficulties in their Christian commitment. They needed endurance. They needed the ability to bear up patiently under difficult circumstances. Commitment to Christ in a hostile world brings suffering. But like runners in a race, they need to stay focused. These baby believers, they were showing signs of progress. They needed to keep working at it. And one of the hallmarks of the Christian faith is love. The love of God for us and our love for him and for other believers. Paul writing to the Corinthians again, wrote in chapter 13, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. And in those verses we just read from Hebrews, he writes, mentions all these three, faith, hope, and love. True Christian love is an antidote for spiritual dullness and indifference. John, in his first letter, writes, If someone claims I know God but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and not living in the truth. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Love, the hallmark of Christian growth and maturity. Trust God, you really can. There is hope from God's promises. And our writer goes on, For example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. And Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Abraham, if you remember from back in Genesis, was childless. And he and his wife Sarah were old. But God had promised them children, descendants. And we read in Genesis, the Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. How can we know we can trust God? We know because he's always been trustworthy. He's kept his promises in the past and he'll keep them in the future. He's not going to change. We read on now. When people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. Without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. God does not lie. Going back in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. And we read as we go through Hebrews again and again, he's referring back to the Old Testament because he's writing to Jews who know their Old Testament. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? People might take an oath as a guarantee of their truthfulness. God is always truthful. But nevertheless, he took an oath as a guarantee of his promise. Our confidence is in God's unchangeable faithfulness. And so as we come to the last few verses on the passage we're looking at today, we read, Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Under that old system of the Old Testament, there was a most holy place in the temple or in the tent that existed before the temple where God's presence was known. Only the high priest was allowed to go into that most holy place and he could only go in there once a year. And outside that most holy place was another sacred place where only the priests could go. And outside that there was a court where the Jewish men could go. And outside that was another court where the Jewish women could go. And outside that again was a court of the Gentiles where anybody could go if they wanted to come and worship God at quite some distance. But now our great high priest takes us into the presence of God. Do you remember the time when at Jesus' crucifixion we read that as Jesus died the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain which separated that most holy place where God's presence was felt was open to everybody. Now our great high priest, Jesus, this high priest in this different order of Melchizedek, takes us into the presence of God and our hope is sure. Are we there yet? Are we spiritual babes in Christ? Are we growing in him? Are we learning more? Are we getting to grips with understanding his word? Or are we still babes? Where do you stand? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words from the the scriptures. We thank you for the challenge that it presents to us that we need to grow more and more into our knowledge and understanding of you and into our life of service for you. Help us, Lord, to grow daily in maturity and in likeness to Christ. And in his name we pray. Amen.